Well, I want to welcome you tonight to, uh, to Plum Creek Chapel for our midweek service. I have a couple of handouts. I think I've found everyone as you came in, but if you don't have one, uh, be sure and pick one up. They're on the table here at the front. Um, and uh, I'll talk more about those in, in just a moment. But um, by way of introduction, let me mention a couple of new resources that are available at the Not By Work site. Uh, on Tuesday this week, I did my standard uh, interview with the Christian Underground News Network, and the topic was Top 10 Misconceptions About Salvation. So if you've not uh, seen that yet or watched it, it's actually an audio only. If you've not listened to that uh, you know, uh, audio podcast, I encourage you to check that out. Uh, really some good information in there kind of packed into a one-hour session. And then also I was reviewing for Sunday, and I realize it's been six weeks uh, since our last Q&A during our end times study at nine o'clock on Sundays. So I think we're overdue. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, do that this Sunday. And I wanted to give you all a heads up so that you can be thinking about your questions. Uh, if you're watching us by live stream, you can email me between now and Sunday with any questions on any subject related to the end times. And we will try to field them uh, this Sunday during the nine o'clock hour. Uh, last time we did this, I tried to do real-time texting, and it's just hard for me to be, you know, paying attention to what's going on here, thinking about my answers, and then watching my phone. So we'll try to get all the questions in advance, and even those of you that are going to be here in the room, if you have some questions already that come to mind over the next few days, by all means, go ahead and email them to me, and I'll, I'll just have them in front of me and ready to go uh, that day. So those are the two announcements for tonight, but as we get ready to uh, dive into our topic, I want to return uh, tonight to the subject of meaning versus significance. You know, uh, as we've been going through these first four sessions, um, I'm trying to be sensitive to kind of where the discussions lead and kind of scratch where we itch and those kinds of things. I do have a, a, you know, a, an outline or material that I want to get through over the next several uh, weeks and months, um, but I'm not on any schedule. I want to just make sure that we uh, talk about the things that seem to be interest of interest to you and that are important for the, the idea of how to correctly handle the Word of God. And so one of these that we've come back to now two weeks in a row is the idea of meaning versus significance. And then I got an email this week, too, from someone uh, who was asking about that, and so I thought, well, let's, let's really uh, address this a little in a little more detail. So to that end, I went back to my old academic folder from years ago. It's been since 2012 since I was last in academics, formally, you know, on staff at a school, and pulled out some, a couple of notes from my hermeneutics classes, and this is what I've given you tonight. If you're live streaming this or watching the video at a later time, at any time, uh, feel free to email me and I'll be glad to, uh, to give you these. Anybody else need one? Raise your hand. Gary's up here. We'll take advantage of him. All right. Very good. Uh, so one of them is two sheets. It's actually four pages front and back. Um, and uh, being an environmentalist, I'm trying to save trees. So not, not really. I'm just trying to save, save work and collating. It's easier to collate two pages than four. But anyway, uh, the other one is only one sheet. It's two pages front and back, a single sheet. And it's kind of heady stuff. You know, as I look back and, and read them, I, I kind of I thought, wow. I remember the good old days in academics where you, you tried to make things as complicated as possible, right? And that's one of the reasons I'm so delighted that the Lord led me, you know, away from formal academics, although I still do quite a bit of adjunct teaching and, and lecturing. But, um, but anyway, try to, you know, overlook the, uh, the academic style and, and so forth and get to the real meat of the, uh, of the two handouts. But both of them, from a different angle, deal with this issue of meaning and significance. One deals with authorial intent, uh, and the other one deals with, you know, context. And so we are talking a lot about context in this series and how important it is to interpret the Bible, as with any written document, in its context, right? You know, as an example of that, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate over the Second Amendment right now, right? A lot of uh, liberals and people that are not a constitutionalists per se, 
think that either we need to drop and ignore the, the Second Amendment, or they try to suggest that, you know, when the framers wrote the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, that the Second Amendment was all about deer hunting. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to go back and look at the historical context, the parallel documents, the writings of the other founding fathers who wrote the Bill of Rights, to see exactly what they meant uh, when they enacted the Second Amendment. So context is important with any document, but especially when we're dealing with uh, the, the uh, powerful, uh, living, and active Word of God. So I want us to return uh, tonight to this idea of meaning versus significance, and the passage that we're going to look at as a, an opening uh, here in just a moment it really lends itself nicely to, to this dichotomy of what does it mean versus what's the significance of it. And remember, when I say significance, I'm also talking application. That's just another synonym for that, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But, you know, when you think about the Bible, application comes pretty easy for us. We, we are conditioned to think of the Bible in terms of how it affects us personally in a given situation. And that's good, because as we talked about last week, the fifth and final step in Bible study, the most crucial step, is personal application. Uh, a changed life. The goal of Bible study is to change our lives, not just to get the right answer, right? And so there's nothing wrong with thinking of the Bible in terms of how it personally affects us, but sometimes our emphasis on application causes us to miss the original meaning of the text, which in turn means that we are missing out on an inspired information that God wants us to know. So application is the goal, but only if it's rooted in an accurate understanding of the text. Remember, the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. So when we read the Bible, if we skip over the context and the grammar and the, you know, what is actually God really intended to communicate when the quill hit the sheepskin, so to speak, if we skip over that and jump straight to application, uh, as I've said before, sometimes there's nothing wrong with the principle that we've come up with as an application, and often the Bible does teach those applications, but by ignoring the context of that particular passage, we're missing out on some truths that God might have wanted us to know about himself right there. So when we talked about, uh, say, for example, Jeremiah 29, 11, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I think it was, I know the plans I have for you. You know, certainly we know biblically that God has plans for each of us as his individual children. So there's nothing wrong with that in terms of an application, but there is something wrong with applying that verse that way because in that context, it's talking about Israel as we talked about. So when God is saying, here I am, look at me, what he's trying to communicate to us in Jeremiah 29 is all about Israel, his, his covenant promises to Israel going all the way back to Abraham, his uh, fact that even though they are facing a, a season of discipline at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, that nevertheless God's faithfulness is true, he's a covenant-keeping God, so on and so forth. So there's, there are truths about God that he is wanting to communicate uh, to us. And when we focus only on application without regard for what the meaning of the passage is, we might miss those truths. Uh, and moreover, in some cases, we actually come up with applications that are not biblical in any sense and because we've short-circuited uh, the process. So, uh, so this is what we are going to kind of focus on tonight, uh, picking up where we left off last week, is meaning versus significance. And the reason I went ahead and printed out these old uh, documents, and again, if you're uh, an online uh, participant in this study, feel free to email me anytime, and I'll be glad to email you those two PDFs, but it's because they hit on this subject of meaning versus significance and the importance of context. So as promised, our top, our passage for tonight is Psalm 4610. Psalm uh, 46 is a wonderful song. I know people that have memorized all 11 verses. It's a song uh, of the sons of Korah. And it really is a very rich, meaningful uh, psalm. Uh, the Psalms, as we, we haven't actually talked about this yet, but You've probably heard me say it. The Psalms are what we call wisdom literature in Scripture. You know, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, other, past, other books like that, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. These are wisdom 
or poetic type literature that tend to give real broad strokes about God, our Creator, but even they are done in a context. And as we talked about Sunday in part one of uh, my uh, two-part series on the weight of sin from Psalm 51, uh, these psalms often have a title right at the beginning that tell you what the historical setting was of that particular uh, psalm. So this one, for example, in Psalm 46 says, A song for Alamoth. And I didn't take the time to go in and research what that is exactly or who that is. But anyway, the point is the titles do give us a context. But this is a beautiful psalm. And we come to verse 10, which even if you haven't really read or, or memorized the whole psalm, a lot of us are familiar with this great verse. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So let's talk first, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, although it would be very easy to do, but I really am excited about the stuff I want to get to. So uh, I know one time we spent the whole time in an instructive back and forth talking about this verse, and, and that's great. I have no problem with that, but I'm hoping uh, to, to, to get through this uh, a little more expeditiously. So when you think about this verse, as you've applied it to your life or seen it applied to your life, how have you applied this verse? Be still in your own life and spend time with the Lord. You know, stop the madness, the rushing around, you know, turn off the devices, you know, just quiet, you know, just go in a quiet place and spend time with the Lord quietly. Okay, so, uh, and, and as a reminder for those live streaming, I will always repeat the question. If I don't, somebody help me remember. Uh, so be, bear with us as we're taking comments from the congregation uh, because it'll kind of sound silent and muffled for a moment. But, yeah, so in your mind, the be still there is, is be quiet, um, set aside the distractions, maybe get alone with the Lord. Okay. Uh, Gary, did you have your hand up? No, but I'll pipe up. I see that hand. Well, for me, when I read it, it meant chill. You've got a lot going on in your life, but just know that God has a handle on it. So Gary said to me when I read it, it, it just basically said chill. You've got a lot going on in your life, but God's got this, basically. And by the way, one, one of the things I want to come back to you, and I'll, I'll let you make your comment in a second, is I liked what you said, stop the madness. And, I, and you'll see why in a moment, but yeah. Well, then, based on the study so far, I went and did the reference, which led me to Isaiah 2.11. And there it gave me a different thought, because Isaiah 2.11 is, The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of man shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And then it goes on to 12, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty. Yeah. And I thought, okay, am I really humble before the Lord? Do, you, do I realize that, that all I have is the Lord's? And it's a gift from the Lord to me. Yeah, so Ken said in his study Bible, there was a cross-reference that took him to Isaiah 2, 11 and 12. Uh, which reads, The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. By the way, day of the Lord, there's a reference eschatologically to the coming judgment of God at the end of the age. Um, so so what? What? Uh, this is a good example. What Ken is doing here is that step Two in our five-step process, which we're going to come back to in a second. Step one is deal with the, a particular passage. Step two is then step back and connect verse with verse, theological cross-referencing or theological linking one verse to another. Um, there, there are some general rules that regulate kind of how it's acceptable to connect one verse with another. Thematically here in this passage, in Psalm 46, the sons of Korah are talking about God being exalted among everyone on earth. So certainly that's a similar theme to what we see in Isaiah, even though the immediate context in both cases is different. But nothing wrong at the principal level of connecting those 
verses. So the reason I chose this verse is because when it comes to making the distinction between meaning and significance, this is one of those that even if you don't get a dead bullseye on the exact meaning, the application that all of you have talked about is perfectly legitimate given what this passage is talking about. So there's no problem with anything anybody has said and how the Holy Spirit might use this passage to encourage you that, you know, God's got this, or what was the one Ken said, stop the madness, you know, slow down. All of those things are legitimate. But it's really a fascinating psalm that gives us, again, additional truth about God. Remember, the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. So what is going on in this original context? What's the actual meaning? Again, no harm, no foul. We jumped to personal application, but I think it just gives you a richer, fuller appreciation for God when you look at the whole passage. So if we start out in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. So our there would be who? Israel, right, the children of Israel, all the Psalms are dealing with the nation of Israel. A very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. So evidently there was some trouble that they were facing at this time in history, and they were writing this psalm and singing this psalm uh, as a reminder to themselves that, you know, uh, God is there, God's got this, you know, to use uh, uh, Gary's uh, phrase. I don't think you actually said that, but that was my paraphrase of Gary's phrase. The history will record that that's pretty much what you said. <laughs> so anyway, verse 2, Therefore we will not fear. Now notice this, Even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and, and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah. So verses 1 through 3 are one uh, verse, one uh, stanza uh, in this hymn. And then you pick up with the second stanza in verse 4. There, And I love this passage. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. He's comparing here the heavenly reality of God that will ultimately be reality on earth someday in the new heavens and the new earth with what they're facing in this tumultuous time with an enemy that's coming against them. God is in the midst of her. That's how we know he's talking here about the heavenly rivers and so forth because uh, it's where God's presence is. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just as the break of dawn. Now notice verse 6. The nations raged and the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So verses 4 through 6 essentially are the next uh, verse or stanza of this hymn, if you think of the old hymn books. Then verse 7, which is repeated twice, kind of is like the refrain or the chorus. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And he ends the, ver the psalm that way in verse 11. And then verses 8 through 10 are the third and final stanza. And notice what we read. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He who makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks uh, actually, I've got these on uh, on here. Um, he makes the wars to cease, and uh, to the end of the earth, he breaks the bow and cuts the spear into. He burns the chariot in fire. So now let me break this down. So the this psalmist, these sons of Korah that were writing this, were facing some military trouble. Some nation was coming against Israel, which it was not at all uncommon. We know that because he talks about the nations raging. He talks about uh, wars. He talks about the bow and arrow. He talks about the spear. He talks about the chariot. So clearly the context here is about national trouble, specifically some type of war or battle. And then in the main verse, he says, be still and know that I am God. Now, this is one of those where it can be helpful sometimes to make sure that the English translation really captures the full nuance of what he's talking about with this word. Now, in times past, this was difficult to do because unless you studied Hebrew and knew the language of the Old Testament, it would be difficult to do. But nowadays, 
with technology, pretty much any Bible app that you can get for free on your phone, you can put your finger over the word and see what the Hebrew word is and then see what a dictionary or lexical definition of it is. And what we find out, not surprisingly, here is that this word be still is the word rapha, similar to the noun uh, peace or the noun uh, heal, healing, uh, is, means to cease striving to release or to let go. So, uh, in essence, what the writers are saying here in the context of this military campaign that some enemy nations were coming against Israel was stop conducting international combat and recognize my sovereign reign over all the earth. So it's, it's at the national level basically the same thing that our two participants in the case study here said on a personal level. You may not be going to war or may not be the leader of a nation going to war, but you're having your own battles, your own difficulties in life, and you need to, to just let go. You know, you might paraphrase this, you know, by the old um, axiom, let go and let God, right? That's what he's saying. Look at it. Be still, cease striving, stop. So it's not necessarily specifically meaning, you know, be quiet or get alone, but at the application level, perfectly acceptable because the nation of Israel basically needed to, to put down their earthly weapons because God makes those things look pitiful anyway. He can, he, they're to no avail when God's the one leading the army and he's the Lord of hosts, right? So be still, stop striving, know that he is God. Uh, so, and then again, he says the Lord of hosts, repeating that twice at the end, is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. So, uh, but now, having seen what it means in its context, doesn't that give you an even richer, fuller appreciation for our God? Especially if we ever find ourselves in America in a time of war, right? Which, who knows, we may. I mean, we're at wars all over the um, country, all over the world as we go in and, you know, well, we won't make any political statements there. Let's just say we want to recognize and value the service of our men and women in the military who are at any given time fighting battles all over this globe. So I didn't mean to make it sound like we're not at war. But, you know, if this nation were to, to kind of have a war on our own soil and be engaged in a full-blown hot war, you know, this would be even more applicable. Um, but at the very least, it just reminds us God is sovereign, that we need to set aside anything that we're doing to take matters into our own hands and let God be God. Make sense? Okay. So again, meaning versus significance. So we've talked about the concentric circles of context. One of the articles that I gave you talks a lot about historical context. This is where to, to just uh, you know close the loop on Psalm 46 by looking at the overall context besides just verse 10 we were able to notice that we're dealing here with national issues, military issues, weapons of war, and we're dealing with the sovereign God who is the Lord of hosts. That's a military reference to God being the leader of his army, if you will. Uh, and so we were able to employ this principle and get a richer understanding of really what's going on there. Um, so let's um, pick up where we left off with the five steps here in the process. So the first three steps in the process that we introduced last week are step one, you start with the Bible. You don't start with some theology book or some principle that some great Bible teacher said or bad Bible teacher, doesn't matter. Doesn't, not, you don't start with what somebody else said. You start with the Bible. And you look at that passage of Scripture, whatever it may be, Psalm 4610 was a great example tonight, in its literal grammatical historical context. And hopefully, because we chose, uh, you know, I think an ideal passage tonight, Psalm 4610, you're able to see how easy it can be for all of us to take that passage that's so beautiful, so well written and beautifully stated, and jump straight to the conclusion, you know, to the application, jump straight to the application. Lord, calm me down, help me to be calm, help me. And again, most of the time when we emphasize application, no harm, no foul, because we know enough about the Bible that we're not likely to make an application that's going to be heretical or contrary to God's Word. 
But what we're missing is the real, you know, literal, grammatical, historical context of that passage. So that's what we mean. I know those are, are words that may not be, you know, commonplace, but in the study of how to study the Bible, in that field called hermeneutics, uh, those three words are, you know, critical. The LGH method is how it's usually uh, abbreviated, meaning the literal, grammatical, historical method. And, and I and those from the same uh, theological perspective, dispensational you know, theology, uh, would say that it's the only correct way to interpret Scripture. If you, if you come at it with some mystical, symbolic you know, approach where you're trying to sort of divine the meaning by reading between the lines or just praying and hoping that the Spirit plants some meaning in your mind, you're missing out on the, the way language is supposed to be used. God created language, remember, and he did so so that he could tell us what he wanted us to know about himself. And so that's what we mean. Literal meaning the, the way that language is intended to be understood in its plain, normal sense. So all that means is that in the same way that you're listening to what I'm saying, and hopefully it makes literal sense, you're not sitting there thinking, oh, he's speaking in some cryptic code and I've got to you know, figure it out, right? Even though I'm using maybe figures of speech or hyperbole or, you know, colloquialisms, those kinds of things, those are all a part of literal communication. The opposite of literal is not figurative. The opposite of literal is allegorical. Allegorical means I say something and then you sit there and meditate on it and then you come up with what it means. You get to determine the meaning, right? That's allegorical. Figurative just means it's a, it's a normal rule of grammar and syntax. We use figures of speech all the time. I just used one. It's called hyperbole. We don't literally use figures of speech all the time, right? But, that's, but you know what I meant by that. I meant that they're pervasive. They're common. It's commonplace in language to use figures of speech. So when we get to that section in this study, I think you're going to be really amazed at how prevalent figures of speech are in the Bible. Uh, we just don't notice them in the same way that we don't really notice them very often in our communication. Um, so literal does not mean non-figurative. Literal means non-allegorical. So we start with the Bible and it's literal. Just think plain, normal sense, the way words are intended to be meant. And the author determines what they mean. Um, grammatical, meaning that Often, you, knowing the subject and the object and the predicate, nouns, verbs, commands, those types of things can help us understand uh, the meaning. Grammar uh, includes punctuation, right? Um, isn't punctuation a part of helping us, uh, the syntax of a sentence so that we know what it means, right? You know, uh, we have a running joke around our family whenever it's time to eat, We'll holler down to the basement if the girls are down there or upstairs if, you know, Wendy's up there or if I'm, on, I'm in my office and they'll say something like, time to eat, Dad. And then someone inevitably will say, time to eat, Dad? Gross, right? Because commas matter, right? And they matter in any language. So uh, literal, grammatical, and then historical just means that words have to be interpreted in their historical setting. And so the illustration that I've used uh, previously, if you were to uh, be talking, uh, talking in, let's say, the 1970s, and you were to say to someone, uh, you know, we, I sure hope we don't have another 9-11. I mean, they wouldn't know what you meant, right? There was no such word. There was no, no such concept, right? Uh, but after 2001 on September 11th, now we know exactly what that means, right? History matters. Words matter in their context. You know, you read, as we've done with our kids, the old the Little House on the uh, Prairie series, uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, and we've taken the tours and traveled the country. Anytime we're near one of the homesteads, we stop and see it. It's really a fascinating uh, thing. Great book. You should read it uh, to your grandkids or kids if you haven't already. But, you know, when they're talking uh, in the first half of the 20th century there about, uh, let's say, you know, Almanzo is riding his horse. That's Laura's uh, uh, boyfriend. I think she became his husband. I can't remember now. But anyway, um, and uh, is that not right? You guys remember? Almanzo became Laura's 
Okay, thank you. I thought I remembered right, but you get old and you forget these things. It's been a while since we read it. Uh, but anyway, if the writer, you know, Loring Hills Rider is talking about Almanzo is riding his horse across the pair and he looked so gay, right? Well, if you try to interpret that based on 21st century meaning of words, you're not going to arrive at the meaning of what Laura Ingalls Wilder intended to communicate when the, when the pen hit the paper, right? So that's all we mean. It sounds like a big, you know, complex concept. It's not. Literal, plain, normal meaning of words. Grammatical, take into account the grammar and syntax. Historical, what's the historical setting? And we really just did that in Psalm 46.10. In fact, we even did a little bit of grammar and syntax with the original language by looking at the meaning of the verb be still, which means to cease striving. Uh, so you start with the Bible and you use the proper method. And of course, we've barely only scratched the surface of the details about that literal grammatical historical method, and we're going to get to much more of that in the weeks to come. But then step two is you then begin to compare Scripture with Scripture, like Ken was doing with Isaiah 2. And, and you can begin to, to, to see these principles, these applications begin to come to light throughout Scripture that tell us something about God. And then by the time you get to step three, you've basically arrived at meaning. You know, so when we talk about meaning and significance, you've come up with what it means. And you're, you're basically developing a statement about, you know, the Bible says X, Y, Z about this subject, right? And so we talked about, and then steps four and five are kind of the application level where you then take what you've learned and you apply it to life rejecting anything that violates God's word, and most importantly, applying it to your own life so that you become you know, molded and shaped over your earthly life into a more godly witness for Christ. So we talked last time about how these basically are the first three steps, the development phase, and then the next two steps are the implementation phase. Yeah, Gary. I was just thinking that three blends into four and five because when you formulate So you're saying uh, when you formulate a clear belief statement, you're looking. How are you looking through the lens of your own experience? Well, it says, "What does the Bible teach about?" Mm -hmm. so what did it teach me? Those verses. Well, what we're talking here, he said. So, well, what did it teach me? We're, you're you're skipping ahead. We're not asking what did it teach me. We're asking what does it teach? What's the in the the one and only singular meaning of that passage. See, remember, there's a principle of singularity of meaning. Every passage has one meaning. And so all we're doing is we're connecting the dots about a given subject, angels, sin, man, God, salvation. And we're saying this verse means this, this verse means this, this verse means this. We put them all together. We can authoritatively say this is what the Bible says about that subject. Yeah. So every Bible... Bible scholar agrees on the first three points. No, they shouldn't. And we're going to get to that very point. So that he said, so every Bible scholar agrees on those first three points. No, they don't. But the fact that they don't doesn't mean there's, there's, there's only one meaning. If two Bible scholars or students, anybody, any Christian, come to the same passage and they come away with two different meanings, one of two things is true every time. Either one of them is correct and one of them is incorrect, or they're both incorrect but they cannot both be right. It's impossibility. There's one meaning. God's not schizophrenic. When the quill hit the sheepskin, he was intending to communicate one thing. And the task of the student of Scripture is to understand. That's why we're calling this how to read and understand the Bible, what that meaning is. But your question is a great one, and it, it segues beautifully into what we're going to talk about next. But make no mistake, steps one through three are not about application. So as I said, we're talking here about what I called last week the development phase. This is where you develop your grid. So if you think about, and I'm going to show you a diagram in a moment that actually helps visualize this. If you think about steps one through three as developing a, a grid through which you funnel every truth claim in the world, and it either passes through because it passes the test, or it's rejected, it's, it's invalid. So this is essentially your worldview. By the time you get to step three, you've got your worldview. But 
how accurately you do steps one and two makes a huge difference in how accurate your worldview is. And that's why we started, you know, five weeks ago with, or maybe four, whenever it was, about why do you believe what you believe? Because if your worldview is a combination of philosophical influences, social influences, political influences, theological influences, and the Bible is just one part of it, it's going to be inconsistent. But if it always comes down to what does the Bible say as the ultimate standard, then you're going to have a pretty good grit. Now, nobody can perfectly arrive at the truth of God's Word in every conceivable aspect, this side of glory. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't try and spend our lives trying. And the illustration I like to use is, is the same thing is true about our moral behavior. According to Scripture, nobody this side of heaven is going to achieve moral perfection as long as we're in this sin-stricken body, the flesh. <laughs> Agreed? But it doesn't mean we shouldn't wake up every day and strive to let our practical righteousness emanate from our positional righteousness in Christ. So the fact that there's disagreement, that's point taken. But it doesn't change the principle, which is there's one meaning, and, and our task is to handle the word correct, to cut straight. Remember we talked about that? So that we arrive at that meaning. Yeah? So what is the role of commentaries, or is there a role? So the question is, what is the role of commentaries, and is there a role? Uh, at the very end of this series, which, I mean, I, we may take six months on this. I don't know. However, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving every minute of it. Um, we're going to have a session on Bible study tools and how they're helpful and how to use them. But the short answer is, as I think it was Spurgeon that famously said, never forget the Bible sheds a lot of light on commentaries. That's just his clever way of saying, start with the Bible. So commentaries can be helpful when you're struggling, when you've employed all the rules that we're going to give you about dealing with the text. You know, when, we, when I went through seminary the first time, they required in every Bible and theology class that you have an unmarked, no notes, no cross-references Bible. Because you don't want to allow any, you don't want to short-circuit the process. You don't want to allow any cross-reference, because as we've said, the cross-references are just whoever the editor of your Bible is that thought, oh, this verse brings to mind this verse. And so they put a little footnote and they connect the verses. We don't, we don't know if that's accurate or not. So you, no, no markings whatsoever, because you, you want to let the Bible speak for itself. But certainly, as you are doing that process at some point, it can be helpful to look at other Bible study tools, commentaries, language tools, word study tools. Someone I think here has the uh, Zodiades word study Bible. That, that would have helped you with Psalm 4610 because you know it shows what that word means. And it doesn't mean in and of itself get alone. Get alone is the application of how to do, how to stop striving, right? Um, so I think they can be helpful, especially if you just can't get there on your own. And so you look, but just you have to remember you can't simply read the commentary and say, oh, you know, Charles Ryrie says this. It must be true. I mean, it might be true, it, and, but it may not be true. And there's a world of difference between the commentaries, as Gary just, you know, sort of referenced, that, yeah, you got people disagreeing. So this is what we, where we left off last week, and I hope you understand the terminology that I've used for years, but I'm always refining this stuff, and, and every time I teach it, I'm you know, coming up with different ways to communicate it. And one of the things that you all helped me last week to see is that perhaps, and let me just explain again what we mean by this. In the first three steps, you're developing your grid, right? Your, your base, your belief system, let's call it, right? Based on a correct handling of the Word of God. So that by the time you get to step three, you've got a grid. Doesn't mean it's in you know full form you're going to continue to do this for a lifetime and study stuff for a lifetime but that's the development phase then in steps four and five you put that grid to use and you use it to validate or invalidate truth claims from every other source and you also mostly most importantly use it to to apply to your life and change your life but perhaps a better way to say this would be that steps one through three relate to meaning and steps four and five relate to application right does that make sense? And this is really what we've been talking about. In steps one through three, you're making sure that you understand the meaning of the Bible in each passage. What does Psalm 46 teach us? What's the meaning? Step four, 
you're now applying it to life. So that as you're facing a stressful time, you're in danger or you're having, uh, you know, uh, being persecuted or having a crisis or tragedy in your life, you might remember verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He did it for the Israelites. He can do it for me. That's the application. Uh, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God, I need you to be exalted right now. I need you to show yourself mighty. And even though the doctors are saying it doesn't look good and the surgeons are saying it doesn't look good, just as your God, the God of hosts that is sovereign over all of these implements of war in a wartime battle, you're also the sovereign God who's sovereign over these utensils and tools in the surgeon's hands. And I'm trusting you, God, to show yourself mighty. Yeah. Does every meaning have to have an application? Uh, does every meaning have to have an application? Well, to the extent that the goal of Bible study is, is to change your life, the Holy Spirit is constantly using the Word of God, as we read in Hebrews 4.12, to cut like a two-edged sword and separate within us that which longs for the flesh which the, from that which longs from the Spirit. So it's not so much that every passage has an application. It's that every passage of Scripture the Holy Spirit can use to apply to your life in some way. But there's, there's an innumerable, even though there's only one meaning, there's an innumerable number of applications. It depends on how, how you know, what the Holy Spirit's doing in, in your life. So I just rattled off uh, uh, an example of someone facing surgery or a loved one who's got, been in a car accident. You're praying, God, help these doctors. You know, In essence, we're just taking the application step from Psalm 46 and many other passages, right? So you can have the same application from all kinds of different biblical contexts, but mainly what we're wanting to say is they're not, they're not tied at the hip. They're not joined at the hip. There really is one meaning, and, and Bible study needs to return to the task of actually studying the Bible and say, what does this mean? And then, hard stop, now let's say, okay, Lord, show me how to apply this meaning in my life. And I, I think, as I said at the very outset, I think instinctively we often short-circuit that. We just, we're so prone to do that. It's the way we've been taught that... You know, we quickly, hastily read a verse. We tend to pull it out of context and we say, Lord, what does this mean to me? And we skip the phase of what does it mean? So, uh, but good question. So, again, meaning versus application or meaning versus significance. That's kind of the, the technical terms in the study of hermeneutics is there's one meaning, but it can have multiple significances in, in given situations. We Last week we were talking about application, same thing. You'll see that as well. So I want you to really zero in on these, uh, these five steps because we're going to come back to them again and again. Um, step one, study the Bible in its literal grammatical historical context. Step two, compare Scripture with Scripture. Step three, formulate a belief system. Step four, use that belief system to validate or invalidate other truth claims. Right. Step five, Apply it to your own life so that you conform to the image of Christ. That's the goal, right? Now, back to Gary's comment. Uh, I want to kind of explain how we end up at so many different meanings of a passage, right? So, on Sunday mornings, of course, we're studying uh, the end times. And I believe that a literal, grammatical, historical understanding of Scripture. Let's go back to uh, this chart. Uh, a literal grammatical historical interpretation of Scripture will lead you to the belief that there will be a literal future earthly kingdom of Christ. It also will lead you to the belief that the church and Israel are not the same, as we see in the second uh, column there. Uh, it will also lead you to believe that the rapture and the second coming are not the same. But yet, we know there are good, godly, well-intentioned, intelligent Bible scholars out there who don't believe in the rapture. And don't believe in a literal future earthly kingdom. I think they're wrong. And I think they arrived at that view because of what I'm just about to show you. They have not been consistent in their handling of, word God, of the Word of God. So we have to remember that false teaching falls into really two categories. There are the charlatans, 
the ones that are just in it for the money or just in it to make, you know, they're fakes. They're literally fakes. And we can all think of the example back in the 80s of all the TV preachers that were exposed by the datelines and 2020s of the world. Um, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about goodly, godly men and women who love the Lord, that, that, that value His Word. They just have a different hermeneutic. They're coming at it from an allegorical perspective, the opposite of LGH. They're coming at it not seeking to find the original meaning of the words on the page that God used through the Holy Spirit, these men to write, 40 different human authors. Uh, they're trying to divine this mystical, spiritualized meaning. And when you do that, you're going to have uh, you know, problems and arrive at a different interpretation. So uh, remember we talked about in week one the importance of cutting straight, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16, rightly dividing the word of God, or uh, 2.15, rightly dividing the word of God. So I came up with this chart to kind of try to illustrate that. So if we, we're starting with the Bible, and our goal is to get down here to the meaning of the verse, the accurate interpretation. Well, how do we do that? I mean, unfortunately, there's not some divinely gold-laden commentary, divinely inspired gold-laden commentary somewhere that we can all run to to say, oh, did I get this right? I wish there were. Um, but we do have normal rules of language that we can consistently employ to get there. So how do we get from what the Bible says to what it means? Well, we do that through Bible study, right? And not all Bible studies are created equal. So to overlay, let me go back here, uh, these, these first two steps, step one, look at a passage in its literal, grammatical, historical context. Step two, begin to compare Scripture with Scripture. By the time you get to step three, you've, you've arrived at the meaning of a passage, and you've simply collated and categorized the meaning of every passage into a systematic theology, it's called. So if I just look at those first two steps, because really by the time we get down here, we're at meaning. We've arrived at step three. We've come up with the meaning, right? So step one was to use the proper method, and step two, do proper cross-referencing. That second step, remember, was to compare Scripture with Scripture. And if we do this consistently and accurately, we will arrive at the correct interpretation. But the interpretation of Scripture, because we're fallen beings and we're not always consistent in our uh, you know, employment of the method, you see... It's not a simple matter of if you're a dispensationalist, you're always right, and if you're a amillennialist or a covenant theologian or a Calvinist, you're always wrong, right? Dispensationalists are wrong plenty of time too. I've been wrong many times, and I, it's a lifelong study. If you look at my file system, at least since I started using computers, which goes back to like 94 or 5, uh, often in my big section on Bible study, it'll say, for example, uh, let me think of an example uh, overcomer passages in Revelation, and then I'll put old. Then I have a new folder, overcomer passages in Revelation. Why? Because over the course of 32 years of study, I've refined my view on that, and I've come to realize that I was wrong about some of those things, and I now see them differently. So dispensationalists, by the way, are some historically are some of the worst offenders of using this allegorical method that we, uh, that we talked about. Uh, you can think of guys like F.W. Grant. You may or may not know that name, but he was turn-of-the-century uh, dispensationalist, a, a contemporary of guys like C.I. Schofield and um, Lewis Berry Chafer and people like that. And he, you know, he came up with the, uh, the uh, number, uh, what was it called? The Number Bible, I think it was called. Anyway, it's basically allegorizing every number in Scripture to mean one thing or another. And it was quite fantastical. I mean, quite fascinating and interesting but it was the worst form of allegorical uh, interpretation. So I'm not, it's not just about being you know, a dispensationalist versus being something else. It's about consistently using the literal grammatical historical effort or, or, or uh, method. So the point is, to the extent that you're able to do these and to cut straight, you're going to arrive at a correct interpretation. But it's really a continuum because the further you deviate from this, the more likely you're getting into incorrect territory. So, for example, oh, I forgot I had already, I went back in my slides, I had already kind of planned to say it this way. So we're dealing with those first two steps here, 
that we're talking about. So, but if we go back here, uh, for example, let's say you, you have the proper method. You admit and readily own the fact that the literal, grammatical, historical approach is the best approach. So you're, you're not practicing allegorical. You're not defending that view. You are a, an LGH person when it comes to the Bible. But let's say you kind of engage in some weak cross-referencing. You connect some dots that maybe don't need to be connected. Well, then you're going to come up with an inconsistent interpretation. So you've deviated a little bit from pure accuracy. right? Um, I could give lots of examples of this, but one that comes to mind is I had a, a student one time that uh, talked about that, that correctly understood in chapter 2 of Acts that the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost was, was pictured as cloven tongues of fire. The text tells us that. And no problem with correct. He got the right meaning there. And then he got to, to Acts 27, uh, on, or maybe it was 28, on the island of Malta after the shipwreck when they're all standing around warming their hands by the fire. And he correctly identified, yeah, this is what's going on here. There's a literal fire there. They're literally warming their hands around it. But then he made a connection, theologically, connecting verses with verses. Oh, fire in chapter 2 means Holy Spirit. Fire must mean Holy Spirit in 28. And so they were all basically, in his view, uh, depending on the Holy Spirit to help see them through. Well, that's, that's bad cross-referencing. There's no justification for connecting those two be like connecting you know hebrews uh where is it hebrews like i think it's 10:31. our god is a consuming fire with the everlasting lake of fire that jesus says is prepared for the devil and his angels is god in hell no no just because it's a reference to fire doesn't give you the right to mean to, to equate them so that's just maybe not the best example but you see the point at step two you can definitely get into some bad in interpretation if you're connecting passages of Scripture that really don't need to go together. But if we drift even further, let's say you start out with an improper method, that you think that it's perfectly legitimate to read a passage of Scripture and then close your eyes and meditate and say, Lord, show me what that really means. And, uh, you know, and somehow you're going to pop into your mind this meaning without actually just looking at the context and the history and the meaning of the words. And you couple that with some you know, even worse cross-referencing, you're guaranteed to come up with an incorrect interpretation. And again, there's, this is a continuum. There can be any number of influences. But if you start out with a terrible method and, and, and you partner that with an awful cross-referencing, you end up with heresy. And that's what happens. So the goal is to cut straight and be consistent and so we're, what this whole series is about is about giving you some principles of the literal, grammatical, historical method. Uh, what questions should you ask? What observations should you make? So you'll get, it'll get to be, and, for, and I don't mean to act like you know, you're not already doing this, because I know many of you are, and we're the, a group this size. Of course, there are you know, people that are, are well-versed in the literal, grammatical, historical method. But... You know, what happens when you're doing this instinctively is you pick up a, 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 the Bible to read a passage, and when you're in Psalms, you know, oh, let, let me look at the title and see if there's anything informative in the title. Uh, let me look at who wrote it. And if it's David, which we know he wrote half of the Psalms, then automatically we know a lot about the author, which can inform our meaning. Uh, let me look at the overall context, what's being said, what kind of psalm is this, those types of things. When we get to, say, the New Testament epistles and we look at you know, Ephesians or something, we want to know when it was written, to whom it was written, what's the argument, what's the main point of his letter, uh, where was he when he wrote this, so we can correlate that to Acts and we can know what just happened. Uh, and we want to look at the context and make sure we know that a particular verse that we're focusing on, we understand where it fits in the flow of thought in the same way that you would read any book. Uh, if you pick up a novel and you read it and you randomly come to a passage, you're not going to understand it. But if you start at the beginning and read each chapter, you'll understand it. We want to do that with these letters. And, and the same thing applies to any type of literature. The, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you want to understand where Exodus and Deuteronomy fit in connection with, with uh, Genesis uh, and so forth. So um, 
it's all about uh, you know using this proper method, which should become instinctive. Now, I want to show you. I told you I was going to show you an illustration of how by the time you get to step three, you've developed that grid. You you come up with a filter. So the Bible should be the filter for all truth claims. And what that means is everything we hear, say science and nature, for example. If you remember when my friend Russ Miller was here talking about the biblical view of creationism, he made the comment that we're all looking at the same data. It's just how we interpret it. It's not like old earthers who think that we all evolved over 65 million years from a wet rock uh, have some secret data that they're not, that we're not privy to and so therefore, they really know the truth. No, we're all looking at the data. The difference is we're running it through the grid of the absolute truth of God's Word. And guess what, by the way? It makes perfect sense when you do that. Uh, uh, same thing with rationality and reason. I mentioned uh, when we talked about why do you believe what you believe, that sometimes philosophical influences get in our way. had an excellent email dialogue with someone uh, today, or I mean this week, uh, that you know questioned this and in their mind uh, they made some great points and I was prepared for it I frankly surprised it took so long because I inevitably I'll have someone bring this up who's who's into rational evidential apologetics which I taught for a number of years uh, his point was that you know the Bible isn't ever irrational that uh, it, we're just dealing with miracles and that so he was kind of trumping rationality to be on par with God. And I said, no, rationality is a man-made construct. God is the only eternal being. He created man in his image. Part of man is philosophy. And as I've mentioned, the only time philosophy is ever mentioned in Scripture, it's in Colossians 2, and it's talking about worldly, false philosophy, the love of man's wisdom. And so uh, we, God is not subject to some external standard of rationality. Okay, God is God. And even if truth claims from Scripture appear to us to be irrational, like the parting of the Red Sea, or a global flood, those types of, or a virgin having a child, that doesn't mean they're not true, because, you know, we use reason and rationality, but we've got to run it through the grid of Scripture. What matters is, what does the Bible say? So I won't rehash all of that, but philosophy, I just talked about the television, anywhere you might hear truth claims. Bible studies, by the way. A lot of Bible studies today are just some teacher up there reading from a book and you know uh, you, you've got to make sure that what that book is saying is actually true how do you do that by running it through the grid of scripture tradition experience and so forth but all of this you've got to run through this web or this grid so that essentially bible study is the process of creating a web or grid of interrelated beliefs or doctrines which basically is a worldview constructed as a framework of reality. So one way to talk about Bible study is worldview. Uh, that's why I, I don't really like the notion of uh, a Christian worldview. I kind of stopped using that terminology a long time ago because to many people, a Christian worldview means you're not Hindu, you're not Buddhist, you're not you know Jewish, you're not Muslim, um, so you have a Christian worldview. I, I don't. I don't think that's true. I think what matters is not the Christian worldview, but the biblical worldview, right? I think I mentioned last time that one of the interviews I did over the last week, uh, the off-air, the person asked me, you know, well, so are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? And I said, neither. I'm a biblicist. And I wasn't being arrogant or condescending or trying to even be funny. I was just saying. That's the way my mind thinks. We ought to all try to be that. Not that Calvinists aren't trying to be biblicist, but uh, you know they are, but they, they don't have the correct uh, methodology. But frankly, I've talked to a lot of Calvinists through the years who are more concerned with are they teaching what, what they believe Calvinism teaches rather than what the Bible teaches. So, so when you think of those five steps, basically this helps us understand what we're doing when we get to steps four and five. We're taking what we have understood the Bible to say and we're saying anything that contradicts that it, it, it must be rejected by our worldview. So any questions about, about that? Does that help kind of explain what I'm, where I'm coming from? 
So let's close out just because I want to kind of whet your appetites for next time with looking at the Bible as a whole. And uh, I bet you guys uh, can easily answer this, uh, some of these questions. So does anybody, has anybody in here memorized the books of the Bible? Sally has. Long time. Who has? Sally. Sally, all right. Excellent. And I saw quite a few hands, so that's good. Do you guys, have they memorize them more or less? Yeah, that's great. My kids uh, have. Uh, they did that when they were in Awana, and, uh, and I have. Can any of you say the books of the Bible backward? No. I can't. The books of the Bible backward. Sorry. A dad joke. Sorry. All right, so uh, when it comes to the Old Testament, uh, and this is getting into what we're going to look at in much greater detail down the road in terms of genre or type of book of the Bible, not all books of the Bible are written from the same perspective, in the same way that not all books in English today. A novel is different from an instruction manual, which is different from a phone book, which is different from you know, a love letter. right? Uh, so the first five books of the Bible are what we call the books of Moses or the technical term for that is the Pentateuch. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you get into the historical books of the Old Testament. And you see those listed there. And then wisdom or poetry, poetic books. I mentioned those earlier. Then the major prophets. And then, of course, the minor prophets, which are all of the prophets under age 18. <laughs> Sorry. All right. And by the way, this chart is, all of these charts are in my uh, chart book. Uh, in the New Testament, you have similarly the first four books of the New Testament are what we call Gospels. And very important to understand that Gospel is its own genre. There were many other non-inspired Gospels that were floating around out there in the first and second century. Uh, so this is a type of literature just like today we have types of literature we have well i've already mentioned them you know novels and non-fiction books and instruction manuals and tabloids that's a genre right um, of course these days you can't believe anything the print media says but back in the day you know the, some forms of print media had more credibility than others you know you wouldn't necessarily take to the bank what the national Enquirer says you know about aliens visiting the white house or something but you might uh trust more what you know, I don't know, the Washington Times or something said. Um, so and then you've got the one and only historical book in the New Testament, strictly speaking. And it's interesting, just as the books of Moses are historical books, but they go together as for a theological purpose. And then strictly speaking, the, you know, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all, strictly speaking, historical narratives. Same thing is true in the New Testament. The Gospels are definitely historical books, but unlike the book of Acts, which is strictly historical narrative, the Gospels take selected events from the life and ministry of Christ, put them together to make a theological point. And, and they're, even though they all generally start, except for John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke start with the birth narrative and end with the passion narrative, their order is somewhat arranged according to a theological uh, purpose. And then you get into Paul's letters, which, similar to the wisdom books of the Old Testament, are very easy to pull out the, the timeless truth, the biblical principle, because they're instructional by their nature. And then you get into the general letters. Uh, this is where kind of the comparison begins to break down a little bit, uh, because you interpret Paul's letters and the general letters the same way. They're all part of epistolary literature. And then you have one, strictly speaking, prophetic book in the New Testament, which is Revelation. Okay. So that's why even though the Bible is a cohesive unit with one divine author, capital A, it's important to understand the context and the literary context as well. All right, any closing thoughts? And we'll leave it there for today. Yeah. So the Psalms are hymns. Correct. Basically written by different authors. So in the in our study method, why wouldn't we just then say, okay, that was music? 
that was, you know, what, you know, just like we have hymns today that are written all the time. Jeff writes yeah. his hymns and stuff. I mean, it's a hymn. Yeah. yeah. And it makes, you know, it makes us feel good or, you know, it helps us celebrate the Lord. So why are these hymns different? So, good question. The question is, the Psalms were hymns intended to be sung. Um, and by the way, all of the wisdom poetry was intended to either be sung or read aloud. That's, that, so, that's consistent across all Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Um, but what you're asking, you know, in terms of why wouldn't we just sort of classify the, the, these as songs or music, uh, it has to do, again, with the history. Go back to LGH, Literal Grammatical Historical. They weren't written for the original purpose of being sung. They were sung to help people remember them. Remember, they didn't have printing presses and pr paper and pens, and it was not easy to distribute information. So the Hebrew language was largely a verbal language. It was passed down verbally. They memorized all this stuff. And these were principles... That, that these writers inspired by God wrote down that they that were that rose to the level of this is something we want to ingrain in our minds of our children and our children's children and so they sung them. Uh, some of them, for example, the ascent psalms were sung every year on their way up to Jerusalem for the annual festivals, and others were uh, sung when they were having an enemy come against them. The uh, the uh, uh, you know uh, psalms that were. Bringing, praying for judgment on your enemies. I can't think of the, the word right now. My brain is fried. But so um, the, the, the singing part of it or the fact that they were hymns has more to do with how they used it than it does the nature of what was communicated. So what was communicated is what we're kind of classifying here uh, and the way it was, you know, you know, the type of literature that it is. So I would, I would differentiate it in that way. Good, good question. Excellent question. All right, well, we will pick up again next week and uh, look forward to seeing you guys here Sunday as well. And uh, if, uh, if you can, send me your uh, questions again. I'll throw it up one more time for those people that might be watching this. Uh, put up uh, or uh, send me, email me any questions you might have because Sunday at 9 o'clock Mountain Time we're going to do a Q&A and talk about all things related to the end times. All right, thank you guys. God bless. Thanks, Jason.